chapter 13, 14, and 15 today, three chapters. Let's go ahead and turn to um, 1 Samuel 13. In our passage last week, we saw the appointment and the coronation of Israel's very first king, Saul. Now we remember that Israel's call for a king was actually a rejection of God as their king. They had really wanted a king like just the other nations, or like all the other nations. And we saw that uh, that was a rejection of God as their king. God had been faithful to them, not only um, as they came out of Egypt, but all through the wilderness, into the conquering of the land, and um, had always protected them from their enemies, but uh, they decided to reject that. In the final few verses of chapter 12, we saw Samuel read a warning and encouragement to Israel, and basically he told them, look, um, it's not too late. You know, if you will honor me, if you'll obey me, if you'll, um, you know, continue to follow me, um, all will go well with you and the king. But if you don't, it's not going to end well. Today we learn that Saul did not take these words to heart. It's unfortunate. Saul did not take these words to heart. As a result, he was ultimately rejected by God as Israel's king. In our three chapters today, we're going to look at five events in Saul's life that sort of demonstrates or indicates why he was unfit to serve as Israel's king and why God ultimately rejected him. So we'll look at those five things today. The first one is that um, Saul committed the unthinkable in offering a sacrifice, an unacceptable sacrifice to the Lord. There's some very specific events that take place here. Um, The priests were the ones that were supposed to make the sacrifices and the offerings before the Lord, Um, especially when it came specifically, it doesn't mean that an individual couldn't, but when it came specifically to the recognized religious rites of following the law, um, only the priests were permitted to do that. So the first time we see this, um, or the first thing that we see here with, with Saul, one of the first reasons or events in his life that indicates he was unfit to serve as king was that he didn't recognize that fact, and that's found in chapter 13. Let me give you some background, and then we'll read a little bit of the text. But Saul and Jonathan actually attacked and defeated the Philistines at a stronghold in a place called Geba. And then they headed down to Gilgal. Now, if you remember, Samuel, earlier, when he was talking to Saul, had said to head down to Gilgal and then to wait for seven days before he did anything. He was to wait for Samuel to come down to Gilgal, meet him at Gilgal, and perform the sacrifices that were necessary and required. Well... After this had all happened, and and, uh, Saul and Jonathan headed down to Gilgal, the Philistines had kind of regrouped and formed this massive force. The text in verse 5 says that there were 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and then people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. That's chapter 13, verse 5. And so the Philistines came together with a massive, massive army. When the Israelite soldiers learned of all this, all of them, except for 600, took off. In other words, they saw the Philistines, the enemies, and so they all scattered. And it left Saul with basically 600 soldiers. That was it. It says that the rest of the soldiers all hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. And others crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. They had gone across the river there. So all these soldiers who had just defeated the Philistines prior to this now got all freaked out because they saw the size of the Philistine army getting ready to attack them. And so then in a panic, Saul sinned by performing a sacrifice that was unacceptable to the Lord. Look at chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. 
Now he, Saul, waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. That's all the soldiers running away. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now the sacrifices and offerings were made twice a day. They were made in the morning and they were made in the evening by the priests on behalf of the people. And so Saul, seeing that Samuel had not come back, said he'd do it himself. Verse 10, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. So what we have here is that Samuel actually did show up, but probably a little bit later. He probably didn't show up for the morning sacrifice. But Samuel said in verse 11, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So in a panic, Saul performs a sacrifice against the command of the Lord. Notice it says that he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. So at first, it looks like, what's the problem here? He did exactly what Samuel told him to do. Well, apparently not. Because again, there were the two sacrifices, the first one made in the morning and the next one made in the evening. And it appears that Saul got a little anxious here. He's looking at the army, he's getting a little freaked out. And so, because Samuel wasn't there, probably right at the break of dawn, he's going to do it himself. But the command was to not just wait for Samuel, but to wait for Samuel to make the sacrifice. He was supposed to wait seven days and for Samuel to make the sacrifice. So all he really did was obey the first part. He waited just enough till he gets to the the seventh day. But then he decides to take matters into his own hands. It's kind of partial obedience. You know, it's almost like when we do just enough, you know, we met the legal letter of the law, and that's exactly what Saul did. Notice that when Samuel confronts Saul, Saul blames everybody else for his sin. He blamed the soldiers. Well, they are all scattering. He then blamed Samuel. Well, you didn't show up on time. He blames the Philistines. It wasn't his fault. He says, after all, verse 12, look at what he does. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. In other words, well, it was hard. I, I, I had to gather up my strength and I had to do what I knew was wrong. I had to force myself to do it. But re- in reality, he was too busy looking around at the Philistines and took matters into his own hands. So Samuel actually calls it a foolish, foolish act. He didn't keep the command. Because again, the command was to wait seven days and for Samuel to make the sacrifice. And that's something that Saul shouldn't have had been told. He knew this, the priests. He knew that was their job. It wouldn't have been shocking to him. But he just thought, well, I can do it myself. Now, from our perspective, that might not make a whole lot of sense, but we're not in an Old Testament economy and culture. Again, the priests were the only ones allowed to take those 
daily sacrifices and perform them. It was restricted. There were certain, certain regulations and rules that the priests had to follow. Because we're talking about a sacred thing here. We don't have anything really similar to that. You know, um, any one of you could teach, preach, do what I do. Because there's nothing specifically sacred about that. But it, when it came to the Old Testament and the law, certain things were reserved only for the priests. Saul was aware of that. He apparently didn't think it mattered. So he went ahead and did it himself. Notice that the text says that had Saul chosen to obey the Lord, not just here but generally speaking, it says that he would have established his kingdom forever if he would have simply been obedient. Which means that Jonathan would have become king and then Jonathan's son would have become king and God would have established his kingdom forever in Israel if he simply would have been a man who chose to obey the Lord. But because of his disobedience, God said he would not allow Saul's kingdom to be perpetuated. He would not allow it to continue, and so he basically rejects him at this point. It says instead that he would appoint a new king, one after his own heart over all of Israel. That's obviously a reference to David. And we already see here a glimpse of what this really is about here. What God really wanted of his kings. If they were going to demand a king, God would be okay with that if the king would be a king after his own heart. And we even see that because God made provision in the Old Testament for kings and how they were to behave. So we get this interesting tension, if you will, with the text, where God was upset with them because they rejected his leadership and wanted a king. But what's interesting about that is it probably wasn't so much about the fact that um, they wanted a king. It's that they wanted a king like all the other nations. What God offered to give them here was ultimately a king who was after his own heart. And Saul apparently wasn't that man. Now why God may have done that, we're not really sure. Um, The text doesn't really answer that. You know, we're going to ask a question when we finish today. Why did God pick Saul when he knew Saul would do what Saul did? We don't have any real great answers for that, but we're going to see some interesting things in the text. But the first thing we see here is one of the reasons that Saul was unfit was because he didn't appreciate some of those Old Testament um, commands that were required um, and we see that in his life. You know, he attempts to murder David and he attempts to murder Jonathan and he's just, he ends up being a very wicked, wicked king. Totally disregarding the law. So that's the first reason he was unfit and we see that in his, um, if you will, this uh, unacceptable sacrifice that he makes. The second reason is he apparently seemed to be an individual who made foolish oaths. He was very, very rash. Look at chapter 14. We're going to get into the text here starting in verse 24 in a a minute or two, but but let's start with a summary here. After battle with the Philistine ensues, Jonathan himself and his arm bearer go off and they kill 20 Philistine soldiers all by themselves. Okay? Part of that is because God confuses the Philistines and then defeats them as a result of this. So Saul is emboldened a little bit. So basically you have Jonathan and his armor going off and killing 20 Philistines. Kind of freaks out the Philistines. God intervenes and causes a tremendous amount of confusion among the Philistines. And they end up defeating the Philistines. And as a result of that, all of a sudden Saul gets a certain amount of boldness now. Sort of puffs out his chest. Let's read uh, verse 24 through 34 of chapter 14. It says, Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day. 
And this is after that battle where they had defeated the Philistines because God had confused them. Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Therefore he put, put out the end of his staff and was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand in his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they had found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck, or they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Alijon, and the people were very weary. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and, ca- oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it and eat it here. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So the people that night brought each one his own ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So what's actually happening here? Well, Saul gets a little bold in here now, and he, and he puts the whole entire army under this oath where he says, you can't eat until I'm avenged. So you get these army, these soldiers that are in battle, they're out in the wilderness, and you deprive them of food. Now, you know, some of the kids have been involved in sports, and you notice that, you know, if you don't eat, what happens? You know, Kimberly and, and Katie eat more when they're in their season, you know? It just takes a lot out of you. And you have these soldiers here that are fighting these battles. It already says they're weary. And Saul, because he gets arrogant and proud here, says, none of you men can eat until I'm avenged. Until I conquer all my enemies. And so they're all weary. They, they can't eat. They can't get their sustenance. The text says that they're hard-pressed here. It's, exact, it's the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, which describes the affliction the Hebrews were under in Egypt when they were being burdened to build more with less. It's a rather in, uh, descriptive word that they're just exhausted. They're hungry. They're, their spirits are shot. So they're exhausted and hungry. They're doing battle. Verse 31 says that they're weary. And yet, Saul says, I don't care. You're not going to eat until I get what I want which is vengeance on my enemies. Well, as a result of that foolish and stupid act, what do you suppose happens? Well, after one of the battles, it says that the men rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them in the ground and the people ate them with the blood. In other words, they ate it raw. Didn't even cook it. Something completely forbidden by the Old Testament law. What's funny about this is even Saul recognized that that was sin. But what he didn't recognize here was his own fault. He caused it to happen. And so he immediately kind of rebukes them and then he has them roll a big stone out and says, okay, bring your stuff here and we'll slaughter it and let you eat it and don't do it again. 
But you're going to see here in a minute that, again, he didn't recognize that he was the problem. And so the men actually are led into sin because of Saul's arrogance and pride. What's really interesting is when you look at the list of Israel kings, you have a list of good kings and a list of bad kings. In fact, just go to do a Google search sometime. You know, good Israel kings, bad Israel kings. And you'll see this list of who the good ones were and who the bad ones were. There's far more bad than there are good. But what's interesting is when they had the good kings, Israel generally was led into good things. In other words, they followed their leader. So is it any surprise here that Saul, because of his disregard for the law, that the men disregarded the law too? Now, can you really fault these guys? They're starved. Now, they could have cooked at first. <laughs> you know, that might not have been quite the violation, but the reality of it is they followed their leader. He had disregarded the law and so did they. That's the nature of a wicked king. And Saul shows that by this foolish, foolish oath. You notice that it's his pride. You know, he says, until I have had vengeance myself on my enemies. It's all about Saul, center of his own universe here. Let's move on. The, the, The second Um, I'm sorry, the third reason he was unfit, the text gives us here, is that stubborn pride. It wasn't just this foolishness, this foolish decision he had made to put these guys under an oath, but the pride behind it. Look at uh, chapter 14, verses 37 through 46. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. So Jonathan told and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God to this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up, pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So what happens here? So Saul decides he needs to talk to God to find out if he should go up and battle the Philistines now. But he notices God's not talking to him. And he recognizes that the reason God is not talking to him is because there's sin. Whose sin was it? Why isn't God talking to them? It's Saul. Because he caused the people to sin by eating the raw meat. But he doesn't recognize his own sin here. And so immediately he kind of goes to the people and says, there's sin in the camp and we're going to ask God to figure out who the sin is and by golly, if it's even my own son, we'll kill him and take care of this problem. So he has him cast lots. So he puts himself and Jonathan on one side and he puts all of Israel on the other side and he casts lots and it says, oh, it's on this side, which is Jonathan and Saul's side. 
he still doesn't recognize that the finger's pointing at him. So you roll a lot again, and it comes out to be Jonathan. And immediately he looks at Jonathan. What have you done? Well, all Jonathan did was he had taken some honey and eaten it. It wasn't a sin. There's no sin in doing that. But from Saul's perspective, he violated the king's oath. And in Saul's mind, that was as bad as sinning against the Lord. I think you got a little bit of a God complex there. So immediately he thinks that Jonathan now has to die. And he's willing to take his son's own life. Because in his mind, God is unhappy because Jonathan had violated Saul's command. Not the Lord's command. But he had equated his command with displeasing the Lord. Meaning his violation of his command. You know, it's interesting when I think about that from a church perspective. (laughs) How oftentimes do we find within churches these man-made laws that we set up and we establish, and we equate them with God's laws and sin, and you violate those, you sin against God. I mean, I grew up with a young man who was from a very strict, very strict Baptist family. Now, there was no indication that he and his family were saved, which isn't necessarily shocking, because just because you go to a church doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. But they had some very strict rules and things that they did not do. One of which was you don't see movies outside the home because it's bad. Now they could watch those same movies in the house. And that was one of the things this young man had shared with me at one point was that that's why he was so turned off. Because there were these things that they couldn't do in the church, these rules and these regulations. But he's like, we would do those things at home. If it's sin, it's sin. Does it really matter? You know, and um, so it was interesting because within some churches, you have some of that. Um, I think I shared another story about how one of my professors had gone to a church one time and the, his wife was the only one wearing pants in the whole entire church because in that church, women wearing pants was a sin. And so this pastor changed his sermon that morning and preached right at the two of them as they sat in the front row of that church because God had given him a message. So he put his sermon notes aside and preached about women not wearing pants, you know. Um, So we set up these rules within church and we equate those with God's law sometimes. And that's exactly what Saul was doing here. His law he equated with God's law. And so when Jonathan violated his law, Saul in his mind thought that was the reason why God wasn't talking to him. Because Jonathan had sinned. And so it's time to execute him. Time to put him to death. And thank God that the people saw through that. So their response was basically, are you Kidding us, Saul? This man has been fighting with God. He's been the one delivering us, which is interesting. He's been the one delivering us from the Philistines. Well, remember, he had gone off with just his sword bear and killed 20 Philistines all on his own. People knew that. So the people, even in their own sin, I think recognized here that Jonathan's not the problem, Saul. And so they defied the king and went ahead and rescued Jonathan. So we have this pride and this arrogance There's nothing in this text that indicates that even at that point, Saul recognized that the problem was him. Isn't that the way it also works sometimes? You know? um, Something going on, there's a problem you're involved with, or there's some tension either in the marriage or the family or work or something like that, and we just don't have a clue that maybe part of the issue is us. I remember a book that I bought one time, and I bought it purely for the title. I knew that it was going to probably be something I'd fall in line with only because the author 
um, was somebody associated with um, Paul and David Tripp, who are neuthetic in their counseling model. Um, and so I think Paul or David Tripp had even written the foreword. So I thought, this is probably something I would appreciate. But the title of the book was, When Sinners Say I Do. And the whole premise of the book, basically, is that in your marriage, you're the biggest problem. Okay, you got a wife that just is irritated. You're the biggest problem. Hey, I told you not to share that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In my relationship with Dustin, he, no, I'm the biggest problem, you know? The whole point of the book is that when there's issues and tension and struggle um, in a marriage relationship, that how you respond to your spouse's sin is just as important as their response to their own sin. And so to point the finger at somebody else all the time, and that's what the, what it, the premise of the book is, these couples would come in for marriage counseling, and it's always pointing the finger at the other person. And he's saying, you know what, you're never going to solve this until you start looking at yourself. And biblically, that's the correct model, because even when somebody sins against you, there is a right response and a wrong response, and your response to that, if it is a biblical response, will help to, to at least process and deal with that tension. may not always solve it, but it certainly isn't going to escalate it. And so, what we find here is that Saul, just like us sometimes, didn't realize he was the problem. There's no indication in the text here. And so that reason itself was another reason why he was unfit to be king. This is so um, opposite of David. Um, Coming up, there'll be a story where David visits visits this town. and, And the priest there helps David. Feeds his men the consecrated bread. You might remember that story. And when David leaves, Saul learns about it. And Saul goes and kills all the priests. David's response when one of the priests, only one escapes to David, and David's response is one of remorse. And David says, it's because of me that these priests have lost their lives. It wasn't David's fault. It was Saul's fault. But David takes responsibility for it. Just thinking, you know what? I knew that when I saw one of Saul's shepherds there, that he would go back and tell Saul. And David basically says, I didn't deal with it. David should have. In other words, he might have wanted to take and capture or kill this man knowing he's a spy. But he didn't do that. But it really wasn't David's fault. But David's response was, oh, this falls on my shoulders. This is about me. Total opposite of Saul, who still doesn't get it. So that's the third reason. His stubborn pride made him an unfit king. Let's look at the fourth reason. And that's his outright disobedience. It's one thing to be arrogant and proud. It's another thing to do stupid things. And, but man, he, he had a problem with outright disobedience. Look at uh, into chapter 15 here. The Lord sends Saul on this mission. And it's one that actually has the potential to mend the relationship between God and Saul. So God gives him another chance here. And he tells him basically to go and to punish the Amalekites which were enemies of the Jews, during their exodus, the Amalekites refused to help Israel and in fact attacked Israel. And so this is the payback, but it's God's payback to the Amalekites for their mistreatment of Israel. And so he commands Saul to attack them and to destroy everything. He says, destroy all their possessions, all their people, and all their livestock. 
So this was a divine act of God's judgment on a wicked people, the Amalekites. That's the mission. So he gives Saul a second opportunity to obey, an opportunity to redeem himself, to show that he's willing to obey the Lord. We saw the word that's used in this text, it's this word harem, which is this idea of destroying, utterly destroying. We saw that in the book of Joshua where they were supposed to go in and utterly destroy certain cities. And it's a word that means that it sort of um, becomes God. And so they would go into certain cities, not all of them, and God would say, destroy them and destroy everything. It's almost like an offering. They couldn't touch any of the spoils. In some of the cities they conquered, they could take the spoils. But on occasion, God would say, no, all of this belongs to me. It's harem. You go in and you utterly destroy it. You destroy everything. Women, children, livestock, buildings. You don't take any of that for yourselves. It is complete and utter destruction of wickedness. And so that's what this is. He tells them to do that. It's used, that word is used eight times in this chapter. So we're told as readers, they're not supposed to touch anything here. Everything is supposed to be wiped off the planet with these Amalekites. God was very specific with Saul on what was required for obedience here. But look at verses uh, 4 through 12 of chapter 15. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them. They came to 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. He, developed, he puts together this massive army. Saul came to the city of Malak, of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So he lets the Kenites go because they were kind to the Israelites. So far so good, right? Showing compassion. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as, you go, as far as Shur, which is in the east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Saul, or Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded to go down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, and the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are annihilated or exterminated? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. 
and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choice of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and insubordination is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. We'll get to that in a minute. Man, there's a lot in this text. Saul failed to fully carry out the command of the Lord. He kills all the people, but he spares the king, first off. Then he keeps all the best of the spoils and only destroys the despised and worthless stuff. So Saul gets there, destroys the Amalekites, and goes, hmm, yeah, God said to destroy all this stuff, but there's some really good stuff here. Because certainly God wouldn't want us to destroy the really good stuff, the really bad stuff, the worthless stuff, the stuff that's not worth anything. Surely that's what God meant. He really only wanted us to destroy those things that aren't really worth much. But it says that God regretted making Saul king because of this. In fact, he says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned away from me and has not done what I told him to do. And so Samuel became angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel saw it for what it was. Samuel understood the directive. Kill everything. Remember, God used a very specific word here that they understood. Destroy it all, because this belongs to me, not you. But Saul saw otherwise. Notice what happens when Saul was confronted. He basically justifies himself. He's oblivious to his sin. He greets Samuel enthusiastically. Did you notice that in the text? Where, um, verse 13, when Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord! I've carried out the command! He's excited to see Samuel. He is totally clueless about what he's done. And again, isn't that just the way our sin is sometimes? We don't even recognize it. Samuel knows otherwise. Samuel knows what it is. But you notice that Saul also justifies his action by claiming they, the people had taken the best of the spoils. And notice it says, they took the best of the spoils to sacrifice them to the Lord. They're already the Lord's. The Lord says, destroy it, it's mine. Well, he's doing a little bit of justification here now because I doubt that they really took it with the intent of, we'll just take the best stuff and make a sacrifice out of it. No, they took it for themselves, and now Paul, now Saul's trying to justify, well, they, they, all, they really were going to take and sacrifice that to the Lord. That, that's why they kept the good stuff. So we put a really good spin on it. Well, I, I, was, I was just trying to you know, do the right thing. I was just, tr- just trying to serve the Lord. That's exactly what Saul is trying to say here. A little bit later he stresses that he tried to obey, but the people didn't. So now it's all them. Hey, I couldn't do... I, they did what they wanted. I, I couldn't stop them. I couldn't do anything about it. So Samuel rebukes Saul with a reminder that God desires obedience above all else. You know, it's funny, because the Lord actually desired sacrifices and offerings. Old Testament commands it. So not that God doesn't want sacrifices, it's just that he doesn't want them as much as he wants obedience. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, we studied this a long time ago. 
God says, for I delight in royalty, or I'm sorry, loyalty. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God, and that's experiential knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, what he told Hosea was, man, what I really desire is their loyalty and their knowledge of me. That they might understand me and know me and experience me. I want that. I don't want their sacrifices. I want their loyalty. I want them to have a knowledge of me and an understanding of me. Isaiah 1, chapter 11, or verse 11 says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Why? Because they were so disobedient. It's like, why show up for church if in the rest of the week you're going to totally disregard me and live like a pagan? I could care less if you show up on a Sunday morning. It means nothing to me. If you don't live the rest of the week like you love me. Proverbs 21 verse 3 says, To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Those things God will not despise. But we're told that Saul's actions were quite the opposite of this. Words like rebellion and insubordination are words that Samuel used to describe Saul's sin. And so another reason why Saul was unfit was because he was outright disobedient, completely, completely disregarded over and over and over the commands of the Lord. One of the last reasons why Saul was unfit to be king is because when he was confronted with his sin and when he did recognize his sin finally, his confessions were often superficial. Look at uh, chapter 15. Verse 24 and following, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Once again, he kind of blames the people. Now, there may be some truth in that. There are times where we listen to the voice of other people and we are led into sin. It's not their fault. So I'm not going to put too much on Saul here. This may be genuine, this part where he says, well, I feared the people. He did. There's probably more to it than that. But he said, I feared the people, and I listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have been re- or you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now think about that for a minute. Why would Samuel refuse? Well, he tells him why. You want me, the prophet of God... The priest of God, you want me to go with you. I'm the voice of God, but you've rejected the voice of God. You've rejected the word of God. So for what reason and purpose would I go with you? You don't listen to me anyway. So he says, verse 27, Samuel turned to go. Saul seized the edge of his robe and he tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, again that's David, who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he could change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned. This is Saul. I have sinned. But please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Now we see the real reason. 
Saul doesn't want to be embarrassed, dishonored. He's going to go back to the leaders of Israel, and when they see that Samuel refuses to follow him, embarrasses Saul, brings shame upon him. Because if he don't have um, the love and affection of God's prophet, there's something wrong. And so he says, here, well, go back with me, so that'll be an honor to me. Go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He didn't need Samuel to worship the Lord, did he? He's coming up with all these excuses now. Go back so I won't be dishonored. Go back so I can worship. I need you there so I can worship God. No, Saul, you need to obey. So Samuel decides, verse 31, he says, So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, All right. I'm out of Saul's hands. He won't kill me now. Priest of God won't do anything. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So the fifth and final reason why Saul was unfit to serve as their king was because when confronted with sin, if there was any confession at all, it was empty. It was meaningless. You know, it's like when we go up to people and we say, well, yeah, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? And really, we don't have any remorse for what we did. It's really more about, I don't want them to think bad of me. (laughs) I don't want to look like the wicked person that I am. (laughs) I don't want to look self-righteous and proud, so I'll use just the right words, you know. Oh, I'm sorry if it offended you. You know, it's one thing. I don't have a real problem if if we say, well, you know what? If I've offended you, I'm sorry. Because that can be a very genuine statement. Because sometimes we say things that we don't intend to offend and maybe they do offend somebody because maybe they're a little more sensitive. And so it's okay to say, you know, I'm sorry if I offended you. But oftentimes when we say that, it's really like we're saying, I'm sorry if you were offended. It has nothing to do with me. And I'm sorry. That's totally different, is it not? And that's kind of what we're seeing with Saul here. The confession wasn't genuine. And to be real frank, a leader can't be a leader when they don't know how to confess. And that's one of the things that was amazing about David. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, committed horrific acts. He murdered a man. He slept with his wife. Tons of deception. He tried to get others involved with his plot to murder Bathsheba's husband. That is sheer wickedness, and the law demanded death. Why did God not kill David? Do you know how David responded when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet? Exactly as he should have. With genuine, heartfelt remorse and confession. You look at his psalms and you can see that. David realized what he had done, threw it all back and said, God, you have every right. You have every right. That's a man after God's own heart. God didn't pick David because he was perfect and sinless. 
picked him because David knew God and knew what God desired. And when it came to his own sin, he knew that what God wanted was remorse and repentance and genuineness. Saul didn't and made him an unfit king. So what do we do with all this? There's obviously a number of questions that are probably on most of our minds. Um, When God made Saul king, didn't he know what kind of a king Saul would be? Yeah, he did. Quite clearly because he's omniscient. He knows all things. So why did God still make him king? Well, that's the question the text doesn't answer for us. We might have to just leave it be at that. I have one suspicion, though. Remember the kind of king they asked for? Give us a king like all the other nations. And that's exactly what they got. It's almost like when we do with our kids sometimes. Fine. You want to do that? And we let them do it. And then maybe they realize, oops, it wasn't such a good idea. Maybe that's why God did that with Saul. Maybe he gave them exactly the kind of king they asked for so that they might learn a lesson. Or realize, I don't know, the text doesn't really answer that. A better question, I think, for us might be, what can we learn from our passage today? And I have two suggestions. The first one is that the text says that he regretted making Saul king. What's interesting about that? It said twice in our text, in verse 11 and verse 35, it says that God regretted making Saul king. But the word that's actually used there is more akin to implying a sense of um, sorrow or grief not mistake. So when it says that God regretted making Saul king, it's not that God is saying, oh, I made a mistake. Shouldn't have done that. It's actually more the idea that that he was grieved because of what had happened. The same word is used in Genesis 6-6 at a very critical time in earth history. Remember what that was? God decides to wipe out the whole entire earth. It's exactly the same word there when when Moses writes, the Lord was sorry, he was grieved that he made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So what's really being said here? God was not sorry because he made some mistake. Rather, he grieved over the sin that he saw in Saul. He had took this humble man, this nobody knew him, small family, but prominent, raises him up. He was humble at the time. If you remember, Saul was extremely humble, but had become this arrogant, proud, disobedient individual, and that grieved God. Sometimes I fail to remember that about my own sin. That it grieves God. You know, we often think it makes him mad. But more than that, it makes him grieve. It puts it into context when we're told not to make the Holy Spirit grieve, doesn't it? And so what we really have here is that we see these two verses in the beginning and the end that say, God regretted. We ought to really read that not as, oops, I made a mistake, but as God grieved because of what he saw in Saul and his sin. And that's a good lesson for us, that God grieves when he sees our sin. It's not just that he's upset or mad. It's that he grieves. It breaks his heart. second thing that we can learn from our passage today is related to that, and it's that obedience is better than sacrifice. When Saul's army was abandoning him and he sought the Lord's help, he thought he could garner it by offering a sacrifice against all the rules in the Old Testament. He tossed obedience aside. The Israelites thought they could earn God's favor by worshiping God through the pagan sacrifices of their Canaanite religion. God was not pleased with that. They were still making sacrifices, just not the way that God intended. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day thought that God was pleased by all their rules and regulations, but they didn't know the Lord, did they? Jesus made that very clear. You, you people don't have a clue who the Lord is. But they were all about the rules and regulations. They were about legalism and the sacrifices and the law. But God's like, I want your loyalty. I want knowledge of me. So the Pharisees didn't get it. Each of those examples, we're told that God doesn't want dead sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices does the Lord want? We covered this a while back. Living sacrifices. Your life. A knowledge of God. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So one of the things we can take away from this passage is that as we look at Saul, he was unfit because he didn't know the Lord, because he continued to disrespect the Lord, he continued to toss aside the law, and not, um, he didn't have any kind of fondness for, for God's laws or for God himself. That made him unfit. And so for us, I think one of the takeaways is that it hasn't really changed. For us, it's not about religion. It's not about showing up and doing our due diligence, making sure we give our tithe, making sure that we show up at church, and making sure we don't see this movie you see. It's not about those things. It's about a knowledge of God and becoming a living sacrifice. Again, something that Saul didn't understand.